that our young people have been studying along with the theme for the Lads to Leaders program. In 2019, we studied the book of Exodus. I think we preached a whole month through that. We talked about one, one sermon was a humorous look at the book of Exodus. Several funny things that happen, as, at least as we read them, it kind of strikes us as a little odd or ironic or even humorous. We had a lesson that was called Onyx and Acacia and Bells. Oh my, because our kids had studied every part of that tabernacle and, and how it was supposed to be built and what went into it. And they had to memorize that as part of their studies of the book of Exodus. In 2020, I had put it off until March, and so you know what happened then. I believe we might have gotten two weeks in, and we were preparing for the third week when we had to send out an email and a one call and announce that we were canceling our services for the time being, and that lasted a little while longer. So we had started Luke, but we didn't finish Luke. In 2021, the study for last leaders was Hebrews, and if you remember, and certainly those who are a part of it did, we decided as a congregation and the parents and the families to not participate in 2021. Several of the kids still took the Bible Bowl test, but we didn't go to the convention uh, due to the nature of 2020 and all the things that had happened. We just felt that we would kind of do our own thing here, so we really didn't get to study Hebrews. And then last year, we talked about Joshua, we talked about Rahab, we talked about Ai, we talked about a near civil war at the end of the book of Joshua. And if I'm speaking honestly to you this morning, if I'm being honest, really honest, I'm in charge of the Bible Bowl teams, and I know that by preaching an overview of these books, it really helps the kids as they study and prepare. Most of you know that they're supposed to be studying at home, but you certainly know from the bulletin announcements that we study here on Sunday afternoons together. But I thought, why not give them one more chance to hear some things, and maybe something will stick with them. In particular, in three weeks, three weeks from today, they'll be taking a test here. They'll do it online now, and they'll have a laptop or a computer or an iPad or something, and, and we'll take the test here in about three weeks here at the building one afternoon. For most, it's 100 questions. It may be for all of them now. It's 100 questions, and then we'll find out how they did when we get there. But not only that, and that time is coming up, but in the middle of April or early April, we'll all head to Nashville together for the convention, and, and so this helps them as they're preparing but if I'm also being honest, what a better way to encourage our kids than to walk with them through the things that they are studying, to let them know that we're behind them in their studies by considering the same things that they have been pouring over and studying these questions and these books. So today we're going to start this morning a study of the books Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, this is the one good graphic that I could find from the, the website that we use, and it, it focuses on Nehemiah primarily, but we'll, you'll probably see this over the course of the next month as we try to emphasize these two books together. The main theme for this year and the theme that their speeches will be about and the puppet show and all these different things that they've done, the main theme is rise up and build. It comes from Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18, and on the screen is part B of that verse. And they said, as Nehemiah is examining the walls, and they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. The main theme is rise up and build, but you may also, you might also could say that another major theme of the book of Ezra as well in particular is home. Now, I don't want to delve too deeply into it this morning because if you have a bulletin in front of you and you see the titles, we have scheduled for this afternoon a little meet and greet, as we're calling it, with Ezra and Nehemiah. 
Now, before you get your hopes up and think that I'm going to get Don or Travis up here and interview them dressed up like Ezra and Nehemiah, that is exactly, no, I'm kidding, we're not, we're not going to do that, but uh, we will take a minute this afternoon to, to look at the historical context of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, I also offer the challenge, I've got about 50 slides that I'm going to need to do in about 20 minutes or less, so if you think that's a challenge, you can, can come, but you also know that we'll be done by about 2.15, so it won't go on too long because our guests will be coming in. This morning we want to examine three things to try to begin to wrap our minds around these two books. The first thing is the location. Now by location I don't mean the place on the map, although we'll look at that this afternoon. If home truly matters, and I think it does, if you've not already opened your Bibles to the book of Ezra, and I know some of you will click and then scroll your Bibles, I guess that's okay, but if you opened your physical Bible, notice where you are. I mean, look at your Bible and maybe look at from the front to the back exactly where you are in the Bible. Because that's not actually where these books belong in a chronological type of way. I'm going to try to, I know these things are small sometimes on here and see, but the red circle emphasizes that if you're looking at Ezra and Nehemiah in their chronological context, they are at the end. I mean, you look at the front if you can see this, and it's Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, all the front half. But you don't go but about a third, a quarter to a third of the way, and you hit Ezra and Nehemiah, yet it's important for us to understand that they come at the back of the timeline of the Old Testament. Now, the books that are above certainly are the prophets in a lot of ways and where the prophets fall in. And again, that's kind of what we'll try to examine this afternoon. But these two books actually belong in the back of your Old Testament. Not the last three, maybe, but certainly in the back six or least or so. And the reason I mention that is my red circle kind of covered it up. But I think that says Malachi there at the very top of that red circle. So maybe Malachi, because he's prophesying during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, would be a good last book. But we could also take them and move them towards the back. If we're going to properly understand what is taking place and what we are reading, then we need to put things in their proper place, in their proper location. Understand where you are in your physical Bible. We talked not too long ago here in the auditorium class on Wednesday nights about how we got the Bible and we didn't even delve into maybe why it might be laid out the way it is for us now in our English Bibles. But understand where you are in the physical Bible. But also that some these events, some of these events that we are reading are the very last events before we reach the end of the Old Testament. And what we sometimes call the silent years. Or what we sometimes call the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew. You may have heard the preacher say it before, but if you turn to that blank page, I know mine's got one there where the Old Testament ends, the New Testament begins. I've got written in mine 400 years of history. We're about to enter that period of silent years where those things take place. Now, let me also make a note here and remind you that we have been studying books of the Bible on Sunday afternoons for a long time now, and we're slowly working our way towards the end of the Old Testament, and we've done them the way that they're laid out in our English Bibles. When we get to the end, God be willing that we get to the end of that, maybe in a few months or later this year, then I do want us to spend at least one month or maybe two on the intertestamental period and talk about those things a little bit. 
But realize that, again, all these events are going to focus on this time. So first of all, let's think about the location. And the location doesn't matter so much on the map, although it kind of does with this, and their return home. It also matters where you, when you're looking at your Bible. Number two, let's talk about exile for just a moment. If you want to go ahead and turn, turn ahead, turn backwards, actually, to 2 Kings chapter 25. 2 Kings chapter 25. Let's try to place things in their proper context again. And we've kind of moved to the end of this, but let's back up before Ezra begins. And let me ask you, can you imagine being dragged away from your home? Can you imagine what it would feel like if people came to your door and drug you and your family out of your home, put you in line with everyone else as you're marching, threw you in the cart or whatever it might be if you're riding, and you began to leave your home, not only your physical home where you sleep, but the home maybe in the town in which you live, and you know that you can still recognize it in some degree because as you go away from it, you turn around and you can see the smoke billowing up as most everything is now on fire because you are becoming an exile. You're becoming exiled from your home and going to another place. Can you imagine what that was like? For them, Second Kings, excuse me, Second Kings chapter 25 gives us a bit of a picture of that. Second Kings 25, beginning in verse number 1. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of, and here's an important word, Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it. And they built a siege wall against it all around. So the city was besieged until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. Now, there's a lot more than just that. You can try to imagine maybe what that looks like, what that felt like. But look in verse number 3. There is a famine. There is no food, it says. Look at verse 4. The city wall has been broken through. Any sense of defense they had is now beginning to fall away. Verses 5 and 6, they tell us that they take the king of Judah or Jerusalem there. And in verse 7, it says, Then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him with bronze fetters, and took him to Babylon. I hope you know me by now to know that I try to be sensitive with some things. I don't want to be overly sensational with some of the stories that are in the Bible, but it's in the Bible this is the kind of movie that we would probably not let our kids watch, right? A king who has to watch his sons be murdered and then his eyes are put out. So the last thing he remembers seeing is his sons being murdered and he's carried away. It's quite the imagery there. Verse number 9 tells us specifically that they burned the house of the Lord. They burned the house of the Lord. Verse 11, they carried away captive the rest of the city. And beginning in verse number 13, and so on through the rest, part, rest of the part of that chapter right there, they take away everything. I'm not going to read it all, but if you open there and you're following along, you see they begin to take away everything. Now, we fought for our freedom a long time ago before any of us were here. We have people who still stand for our freedom and go for us in our place to places so that we can have a sense that we won't ever feel this. 
But I think you know as well as I do, that's not guaranteed. It's awful. What they suffered was probably much worse than we even read about here. And we sometimes imagine what the U.S. of A. might look like had things been different. What it would be like now if we were actually overtaken by another world power. But do you recall from the Bible the most famous captive of all? Turn to Daniel chapter 1. Because we get a sense in Daniel chapter 1 of not the atrocities maybe that were there, but some of the things that took place. Daniel chapter 1. Again, Daniel might be considered a little out of place, if you will. But what does it say there in Daniel chapter 1 and verse number 1? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Nebuchadnezzar is the king and he is the one in charge of taking these captives away and putting them in exile. The Babylonians actually, I know it's hard to read this and see this sometimes, but the Babylonians actually took away captives in three different ways. Our kids know from studying the Bible Bowl, that's the biblical number sometimes, right? But three, three different ways. And Daniel and his friends were actually in the first wave of captives that were taken away. But remember all that happens to Daniel, having to serve in the king's palace, defiling themselves, or actually, of course, we know that Daniel in verse number eight purposes not to do that, but so many don't have the strength and courage of Daniel, and they give in, and they defile themselves with the king's food and wine. They are in exile. Judah is no more It might have been great at one time, but it is no more. And we might even say that Judah is simply a province in Babylon now. That's all it is. It's simply a group of people and they might could could constitute a province or a, a suburb, we might say, or something as a part of Babylon. Again, this afternoon, we're going to examine a few maps and things and our kind of chance of just trying to overview a little bit more Ezra and Nehemiah. And so they have been carried away. And one thing I noticed as I was finishing looking at those slides over the last couple of days is we're not talking about being carried across the street, okay? And, of course, we might say, we might use the, we might pick China, okay? We might just say, in our terms today, China. And I know we've got to cross over oceans and that kind of thing if we were to be carried away there. But can I tell you, they're being carried away a good number of miles, It's not just across the road. They've got to march all the way there. But then, of course, what we want to see as we conclude this morning and as we begin to set the stage for Ezra is they're going to have to travel back home. They're going to have to travel back home. So as we open the book of Ezra and where we are as this book opens is they are a people who are ready to go home, to go home. Now, we're going to have three points here under this under this last point. And the lesson will be yours. But let's talk about three different returns. Number one, the actual return home. It was by decree, decree of Cyrus. If you might, if you haven't already, you can turn back to Ezra chapter one. Excuse me. But it begins actually at the end of Second Chronicles chapter 36. If you're turning there or you have and you've opened up, look at the end of 2 Chronicles 36 beginning in about verse 15. And you'll see the fall of Jerusalem described there as well. That's not in contradiction to what we read in 2 Kings. They go together, they overlap some, but it's the same thing. That Nebuchadnezzar has come in, 
He's going to begin to burn things and take people away and then carry them some away captive. But if you look in 2 Chronicles 36, beginning in verse 22, and by the way, this is written as I kind of intended it for, if you don't take a break, but you follow right into Ezra chapter 1 and go through Ezra chapter 1 and verse number 4, you see the decree of Cyrus that the people be allowed to go home. They be, be allowed to return and to rebuild. Now, there's a powerful lesson here as we, consider the, as we consider the return home. There's a powerful word that is used, and we were able to hear several lessons on this last week at, at Fried Hardeman that I'd love to, to bring in some of, to, some of it to you at some point in the next couple of weeks. But that word is one that we still use today, and that's providence. There, there's a bit of providence in the beginning of the book of Ezra. Now, that word's not find, found in the Bible anywhere, the word providence, but we see it. We don't usually turn to Ezra chapter 1 when we talk about providence, yet here we are. I'm going to ask you real quick to turn one more other place, and that's Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44, because as we think about Isaiah 44, there is a wonderful, wonderful encouragement about King Cyrus. As you turn to Isaiah, you'll notice in chapter 44, really through the end of the chapter, especially verses 26 through 28, and even over to chapter 45 and verse number 1, that Isaiah speaks of Cyrus. But the amazing thing is that when Isaiah speaks of Cyrus, it is 150 years before Cyrus does the actual thing. Now, I held my place there, so let me show you again. But this is what we're talking about. I've gone forward this many pages, but it's not happened yet. Isaiah falls further back in our Old Testament the way we have it. But think about it, 150 years, this passage in Isaiah is saying that the city would be built and the foundations of the temple would be laid. But here's the problem. When Isaiah is saying that the city would be built and the foundations would be laid, those things are done. They're still there. They're already accomplished once. And people are hearing the word of Isaiah and looking around and saying, well, wait a minute. The city's still here. The foundations are laid. What are you talking about? Isaiah probably sounds like a madman to these people. Yet 150 years later, Jerusalem and her temple are no longer standing. They're nothing but rubble on the ground. And 150 years later, just as Isaiah prophesied by the word of the Lord, a man named Cyrus, a man named Cyrus is in place. And he is in position to allow the Jews to return home and to build. I don't think we can fully wrap our mind around the providence of God. I could stand here today. I could pick a name. I could say that in 150 years, a man named Jerry is going to do something great. And you know what? I might be right. Not because God gave it to me or told me that, but just because I picked a name and I got lucky. I don't know. It's, it's not the same thing. God prophesied that Cyrus would be the one to do this. And Cyrus is the one to do it. As we look back at the decree of Cyrus to allow the Jews to return home, there is some amazing providence involved. Number two, let's think about the return to God. 
Ezra chapter 2 probably looks a little different in your Bible. It does in mine. Even if you have a digital copy that you're scrolling through, it may look a little different. The type may be a little offset. It's one of those lists, right? One of those lists that we don't like reading. In fact, our kids know that some of the chapters in Ezra and Nehemiah were skipping because the people in charge have said, we're not going to quiz you that you can name how many people in all these names. It does have importance, but it's very difficult when we're trying to actually grasp what the book is about. This list, though, is not necessarily a genealogy. It is the list about 50,000 people strong of those who volunteered to return to Jerusalem. Now remember, they have been in captivity. They've been in Babylon 70 years. 70 years they've been in Babylon. We spoke earlier of how great it feels sometimes to go home. But here's the problem. Their home was not home. Many of the older Jews had died in Babylon. Many of the youngest Jews had never even seen home. So one misconception that we need to get out of the way is that this was some kind of rah-rah, wonderful moment. There's been the decree. We're all going to go be happy together, travel together, and things are going to be wonderful. Everyone was not probably excited and pumped up to return to Jerusalem. Seventy years. I know these people down here don't have any concept of 70 years. I know some of you others may have a concept of what 70 years feels like. Everyone had settled. Communities had been built and formed. In fact, what happens as you read is that many Jews decided to stay in Babylon. Say, well, wait a minute, they got a chance to go home. This is supposed to be wonderful. And it is in some ways, but many people did not leave Babylon. So why did they return? We might could say it was a chance to return to God. They returned to fulfill the promises and plans of God. If you chose to return, you were making a huge, huge commitment. Think of the work that is needed today, all right? Think today of the work that is needed to be done if a strong tornado comes through. Some of you have witnessed that in our area, down around Ottawa, or maybe even in Cookville in some of these places a couple of years ago. Think of the work that has to be done. Think of the debris that is spread everywhere. I've never had a chance to help myself with an outreach like that or a cleanup, but I know that the pictures I see on television, usually where the cars can't even get through, trucks can't even get through because there's so much stuff everywhere, it's a little overwhelming. I mean, how do you even start to pick up and to rebuild after something like that happens? This is what they were facing. It wasn't easy. It was going to be a huge commitment. The Jews who were returning weren't really returning home They were returning to the land that was promised to them by God. And in a sense, they're returning to him. Does this sound familiar? Is there a parallel to Christians? Paul would write in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 20 that our citizenship is in heaven. Sound familiar? They're not returning to this holy land in a sense. It is promised to them by God, but they're returning to God. As Christians, this world is not our home. But we have a chance to serve him. And they did return to God. Then third and finally this morning, there is the return to obedience. This is really important. Turn to Ezra chapter 2, verses 61 and 62. If you're reading Ezra, I can almost promise you that you would blow right past this and not think anything about it. But I think there's a powerful story that's found here. 
And it's at the end of this long list of people and names, but it gives us one final lesson this morning. And the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Kaz, and the sons of Barzillia, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzillia, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. These verses tell us that among those who returned home were some men who wanted to be priests, but they could not prove their genealogy. Remember back in Numbers chapter 1 where God said that only those of the tribe of Levi could serve as priests. These men were eager to serve, but they could not prove they were from the tribe of Levi. So what did they do? Did they argue that after 70 years of suffering, this shouldn't matter? It's not a big deal to God anymore. Did they decide as a group to let these men serve because you know what they've got good hearts and they have the desire and we don't want to discourage them did they say well it's just a small thing really it shouldn't matter we need more men we need more men to serve as priests so let's just let them did they say well they can't prove that they're proper, that they have the proper genealogy, but you know what? They also can't prove that they don't have the proper genealogy, so just go ahead. By the way, the answer to all of those is no. That's not what they did. That's not what they said. They said, no, you can't serve as priests. And the point is, maybe, just maybe, they had learned their lesson. And they were ready to be obedient to God. Maybe, just maybe, they realized that the whole reason that they had lived 70 years in captivity was because of disobedience. Taking what God had said and minimizing it or downplaying it or denigrating it or flat out ignoring what he had said. That's why they served 70 years in captivity. And so the first thing we're going to do when we get out of captivity is not say it must not be a big deal what God said. Or they're good people and we love them, so we're going to let them do whatever they want to do. They said, no, this is not what God has said. We're not going to do that. There was a return to obedience. And maybe that is what we need as well. To stop thinking what we want to think or what we feel or what we think is best, but to simply return to what God has said to do. Now, this has been an introduction this morning and a few lessons from the first few chapters of Ezra. This afternoon, we're going to dig deeper into these men, and over the next few weeks, we'll examine a few parts of these books and of the history of God's people as it relates to Ezra and Nehemiah. But as we conclude this morning, as is our custom here, we don't live under the old law. We don't offer sacrifices. We are acceptable to God when we obey him and his will for us today. That involves and includes his simple plan of salvation. It's not laid out perfectly in this kind of checklist way as we listed on the screen here. But as you read the words of Jesus in some of these passages, as you read the words of Paul and other inspired men who would write, we're told that you must believe the word that Jesus is the Son of God. You must repent of your sins and you must confess Jesus as Lord. And it is he who believes and is baptized who shall be saved. 
We see an example of that. Not just the words of these men and of Jesus telling us to do that, but in Acts chapter 2, we see people doing it, and we see the result. The Lord added to the church daily, such as we're being saved. The beautiful thing this morning is you can return home, in a sense, by returning to God. And as you do that, he will add you to his church. As you obey exactly what he has said, and you can be on the path to heaven above. Maybe you've done that, but you've struggled to remain faithful. Boy, we're going to talk about that a lot over the next few weeks. Because these good children of Israel did good things. They also did a lot of bad things. They were good and followed God. And they were bad and they follow, fell away from God. So maybe you're here this morning and you've become a Christian, but you've wandered away from him. You've allowed sin to enter your life and you like the forgiveness of God. We can assist you with that. We can also assist you in praying for you in whatever it might be that you're struggling with. We're thankful that God has given us this body, this family together, that we can encourage you even now as we stand together and as we sing.